Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Tuesday, May 30th. Hope you had a nice Memorial Day. Among the holiday weekend news you might have missed is the Cannes Film Festival Award winners. The coveted Palme d'Or went to French director Justine Triette for her thriller Anatomy of a Fall. But Americans were completely shut out of the awards. And a few of the high-profile U.S. offerings, like the new Indiana Jones, the Pixar film Elemental, and the HBO series The Idol, starring The Weeknd and Johnny Depp's daughter, didn't fare too well with critics. The Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon and the new Todd Haynes movie with Natalie Portman did fare better. I've been to Cannes many times, and it's a whirlwind of long and very artsy movies, promotional stunts designed to generate worldwide media hits, premieres on the beach with a high, who the hell are these people energy, and lots of deals. Films getting sold and pre-sold, financed, or used as a front for shady money laundering, usually on a yacht or in a hotel suite above the Quasette. And parties, of course, and fashion and European socialites. There were some especially cringy events this year, thanks to the WGA strike back in the U.S. and the precarious position that these Hollywood studios are in. Didn't seem to matter at Cannes. I didn't go this year, but everyone I talked to said it finally felt like Cannes was back after COVID. Lucas Shaw did go. So we're going to talk today about some of the takeaways from the festival, how much this fest still matters, if at all, and what it says about the state of the film business, especially the independent film business. This pod is getting a five and a half minute standing ovation. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw, who is still wearing a tuxedo. Are you still in your tux? You know, I didn't even dust off my tux, which I did bring with me, but I brought it with me to see the Martin Scorsese movie. And then uh, I ended up going to a screening of it two hours before the premiere, so I didn't have to sit there, and I could have a dinner at a civilized time. Wow. That's nice. Yeah, there's nothing like sitting through a three and a half hour movie in an ill-fitting tuxedo to really just highlight your experience. All right. We are talking about the Cannes Film Festival, which wrapped up this past weekend. And I have mixed feelings about Cannes. I have been many times uh, when I was running Hollywood Reporter, we had a huge presence there. We'd send dozens of people. We'd put out daily issues there. And there's so much hoopla. And by the end of my experience at Cannes, I started to ask the question of like, why? What, why all of the hoopla? Why does anyone in the real world still care about this? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Question. Because, yes. Did anyone in the real world ever care about Cannes? Oh, I think so. In the monoculture, 
you could still open a movie there and have it be the start of a big rollout, you know, the Pulp Fiction or, you know, it, it does, it puts a stamp on movies that break out. I mean, and even to a smaller extent, you still have that today. This movie, The Zone of Interest, which is a Holocaust movie by Jonathan Glazer, that got pretty universal raves at the festival. Didn't win the Palme d'Or. Palme d'Or went to another movie called Anatomy of a Fall by Justine Triette. But Zone of Interest got the Grand Prix, which is the runner-up. And I think that will put that movie on a path to the Oscars and ultimately end up with an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. So it still does influence that little segment of the culture. But I looked at some of these premieres and I'm just like, why? So we're going to talk today about some takeaways from the film festival. And the first one I want to start with is, are we sure we want to take this movie to Cannes? Because we saw a ton of these movies, most notably Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, do a big splashy premiere. And then the critics get a hold of the movie and it gets panned. And now Indiana Jones has three and a half weeks of bad reviews sitting out there to overcome before it gets released in theaters. And, you know, yeah, they got a ton of press. They got a bunch of, you know, nice things said about Harrison Ford. He did a fun press conference. But should they have taken this movie? And you could say the same for Elemental, the Pixar movie, which didn't get great reviews. It was closing night. It's like, why? Why are we doing this? Well, probably because of Top Gun, right? They Paramount brings Top Gun there last year. It, to, to your point, becomes the start of this huge marketing campaign, or, or maybe not the start, but it's in the middle of it. Uh, and it goes on to be the, the biggest movie of the year, not named Avatar. True. And but, ma- that, look, but Top Gun probably would have been that. Well, they also, they knew that they had a movie that people were going to like, right? You talk to anyone at Paramount leading up to it, they all said they had really high hopes for that movie, not as big as it ended up being. I, I, I don't get the sense that anyone had that for, for Indiana Jones at Disney. Maybe I'm wrong. I think they must have thought it would be better received than it was. Or they just said, you know what? Harrison Ford is one of the last huge global stars and it doesn't matter if the movie's not well received. It's not for critics anyways. We're just going to get a ton of global press out of this. And they did. So maybe we're both wrong and that Cannes is still a place where you can get the world's attention for one night. And this movie is probably going to do well uh, across the globe. And it was worth it for them. I just don't, uh, when you don't have the goods, it's tough to go to Cannes. Like, for instance, why did HBO take the idol to Cannes? Is it because they had a huge star in the weekend? This is the Sam Levinson follow-up to Euphoria. It that got, has Johnny Depp's daughter. Yes. Was, we'll talk about Johnny Depp later. <laughs> <laughs> but the French are sort of more open to the kind of highly charged sexual content. I don't know what they got out of this because the idol was also panned. Critics hated it. Even the French critics hated it. Well, you have to know the audience, right? Like most of the critics at a film festival like Cannes are, are fairly discerning. I mean, yes, you have people, I, you have lots of people there. Are they, though? Have, I mean, look, look, everything gets you a You just named a, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but you just named three different things that got panned. I know, but I will say that it's a warm audience for a certain type of film. Everybody is there. They want to like it. And most of these movies get a five and a half, six minute standing ovation that is dutifully recorded by the trade press and pushed out as if it matters. 
I think it's a warm audience for a movie like Zone of Interest, though, which is a movie that I hear you on it being the start of an awards campaign, but like seven people are going to buy a ticket to see that movie in a theater. That's true. Although, you know, Parasite found an audience and then went on to win Oscars. Like, there are examples. Triangle of Sadness ended up getting Oscar nomination after debuting at Cannes. There are movies that have leveraged Cannes recently to go all the way into the Oscar race. So it still does matter for that. But, you know, like anything in the movie business, the prospect of these types of movies doing any theatrical business is very tough. And that gets me to the second point I want to talk about, which is the pessimism about the indie film business, which I heard from people that went to Cannes. A lot of the market raps were disappointing. For the record, I did predict this on this podcast that it wouldn't be a great year at Cannes. But you moderated a panel there. Give me the buzz and the feeling about the indie film market at Cannes. The feeling outside of the U.S. was very strong. They were, I think they're still sort of in the moment of the movie business is coming back. There's money. People have come out of lockdown, all these things. And folks were willing to 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 spend and and buy up rights. And if you have the right project, you know, there was a a Rebel Wilson project that like people didn't it those bridesmaids meets diehard. Oh, Sounds we talked awesome. about that. We talked about yeah. that on the show. Craig's super into it. Yeah, it doesn't sound great to me, but they had no problem finding buyers for the for the rights to it because it it's sort of the idea sold itself. But the US market people were really down on. You know, the there were folks on the on the panel I moderated that we're talking about how, you know, there are projects at film festivals that are getting like no money guaranteed up front. Except from Saudi Arabia, you can get anything you want from yeah. Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> uh, Spain, lots of markets with big presences at, at the festival. The Saudi thing is hilarious, though, because it's such a hot button and people won't take their money in the U.S., although it can. It's sort of all bets are off. You just do whatever you want. Well, won't take their money in the U.S., except... There is a movie that premiered there that Netflix has the French rights to that Saudi Arabia co-financed. Yeah. So, Oh, and Saudi Arabia is basically backing the trade press. Like if you look at Hollywood Reporter Variety, like all those Penske outlets, they are way in bed with Saudi Arabia. So it's not like people aren't taking their money. They are. But at Cannes, it's like they have sort of free reign to just go and do whatever they want. Whereas in the U.S., the, the rules kind of apply. Yeah they, yeah, they have to. The rules don't seem to apply to the Writers Guild. As well. I mean, we looked at this is another one I want to talk about is that the writers who are also directors, I'm thinking like Martin Scorsese or Sam Levinson of The Idol, those writers were all there promoting their work. And many of the writers back in the US frown upon that. They're like, no, we shouldn't be promoting this stuff when we're on strike against these companies. Yet there was Sam Levinson promoting his Warner Brothers Discovery product and Martin Scorsese promoting his Apple product. And the WGA stuff didn't seem to apply. Do you fully understand the the no promotion idea? I, I understand it. I think it's being selectively followed. And if you call the guild and you ask them, can I promote my movie? They will probably tell you, no, you, sh you shouldn't be doing that. However, people seem to be doing what but isn't they that, find Isn't that sort of a self-inflicted wound? Like, don't you, can't you use the time to promote it to talk about the issues at stake while also making sure. sure people see the thing that you spend a bunch of time working on? And and that is the position of a number of people who have done interviews. I mean, Mike Schur came on this podcast and talked about the Writers Guild issues, and I think very effectively. He was also promoting his Amazon show, Primo. Yeah. His publicist set up that interview with me for Primo. 
But then the writer's strike happened and he said, yeah, I'll still do it. So there is a benefit to them doing press here. But if you notice, Martin Scorsese and Sam Levinson were not talking about the Writers Guild when they were giving their remarks. They were celebrating themselves and their projects. So there there is the argument there that they shouldn't be. I'm not taking a position on that. I'm just noting that the rules that seem to be uh, followed more often in the U.S. were not followed at all. Well, they don't they don't really. Yeah, I mean, they don't. Those rules don't apply to foreign writers. And 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 so I imagine that they also feel like if they travel, people just aren't paying as much attention. You know, what other rule doesn't apply is the cancellation rule. Johnny Depp. On full display, opening night, the French do not seem to care that a judge in the UK decided that he had abused Amber Heard. He was exonerated in the American trial. It was a civil case, but he was awarded damages for defamation. But that guy cannot get a studio job in America, yet he was the star of opening night at the Cannes Film Festival. And spoke often at the at the press conference <laughs> afterwards about his relationship with Hollywood, simultaneously saying that he doesn't think about Hollywood because he doesn't work in Hollywood and so he hasn't been disowned by Hollywood, while also saying that nobody in Hollywood will hire him. Very, very weird high-wire high act that he attempted to perform, along with the director of that movie. So Yeah, yeah didn't she, like, spit on someone? <laughs> there, was, there was a whole controversy. This was before I got to Cannes, but there was a feeding frenzy at the press conference over them. I mean, the the decision to show that movie Jean Dubarry was a great way to to get attention, but does I think underscore very different social mores about gender dynamics in France versus the US. I'd have a hard time seeing Sundance showing that movie. No, not in a million years. <laughs> and it was just hilarious to see all of the American press just go completely crazy and like pulling their hair out that this guy is up there like denouncing Hollywood and everything. And yet he can't get hired in Hollywood. They do not want him. Also like a backwards way for Netflix to get in the film festival because they're distributing. That's the movie that they're distributing in France. They can't get their movies in competition there. Right. That's still in place. I feel like it goes back and forth every other year where Netflix is in on Cannes, then they're out. But they are now out because the French film industry requires theatrical distribution for streaming. Correct. It's more that can requires that your movie be distributed in theaters with an extended window in order to play in competition there. I thought also the way that the deals are, there's protectionism for the theatrical window in France. There is, but I think that is separate from the specifics of Netflix movie showing. There's a really, what there is in France is there's a really long window between movies debuting and going on streaming, which is very frustrating for for the folks at Netflix. And it's also done in a way where there's like a slight preference for Canal Plus or benefit to Canal Plus, the sort of the local, the local equivalent of HBO. But, you know, I'd be interesting. What if Netflix showed up to Cannes with a Martin Scorsese movie? Could Cannes say no? Oh, man, that's like catnip. Well, it's funny because Apple is not that much better than Netflix, although they do show their movies in theaters and they are saying, that, you know, or they're the starting room. to at least. Yeah. The funny thing also is that Apple sort of elbowed out Paramount. Paramount is releasing Killers of the Flower Moon in theaters, yet you didn't really see Paramount executives or people there at Cannes. They have sort of ceded the spotlight to Apple, even though the theatrical component is being handled by this traditional. Yeah, I'm trying to think when they showed it, you saw the Apple logo. 
Did you, I think no? You saw Apple and then Paramount. I take it back. You saw. Yeah, I think they have to put the logo on yeah. there. But it, they certainly you did not see Brian Robbins, the head of Paramount Pictures, uh, there at the very premiere. small Paramount contingent. Yeah, very funny. I will say, I have a, a friend who put it very well. There's it, that movie's three and a half hours, but there's a very good two and a half hour movie somewhere in there. Why three and a half? I just wish there was someone in the world that could say no to Martin Scorsese. It can be you. We'll name you. We'll we'll put you in charge of a studio. <laughs> Uh, he should start listening to the town. Marty, come on, man. Like, our butts get numb. I want to talk a little bit more about this, the, the business aspect, the indie market, because you mentioned this, this pessimism. The streamers were not as big of a player this year in buying films. I mean, I saw a couple deals where Netflix, Netflix picked up. Yeah, Netflix took the U.S. rights to the, this movie from Todd Haynes that stars Natalie Portman that got really good reviews, very strong response, but notably U.S. only, right? Because they think that movie only has much of an audience in the U.S. Apple was there with the Martin Scorsese movie. There were a couple of other deals. But you did not see one after another as we have in previous Cannes film festivals of, of the streamers just kind of dominating and taking world rights. I think that's a sign that the streamers are less interested in this kind of product. I mean, I know Netflix is kind of pulling back on the prestige in favor of the gourmet cheeseburgers that they like to put out. And I wonder if this is a sign, a further sign of that. All this stuff is a little cyclical, but I do think these streaming services are more and more going for the mass market, right? Amazon started off going indie darlings, then went mass market. Netflix has made a, a Netflix does everything, but they don't have as much of a need for the the festival favorites. Apple has played with festivals and parts like when they're new, they have to do it because one, that's the way to get product. And two, they get to get close to filmmakers. But once they get established, they don't need it as much. So I, I do think it is it is a sign of of a shift in how the streaming services are approaching original movies. But if the streamers are less interested in this kind of prestige movie and the theatrical indie distributors can't really make a business out of this kind of movie, where does that leave the market for this kind of movie? Well, why do you think people were so pissed off? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, that's not great if, you know, these movies one after another well, you've got basically A24 can figure out how to get like two or three movies a year to work, if that. And then maybe like there's an international sensation and maybe one other. But yeah, the market on the indie film distribution side is pretty bleak when you look at how few of the, I mean, the return of movies in theaters, right, has been for Blockbuster. It hasn't been for the $10 million, $20 million, $5 million indie. And if streaming services are not that interested, it, you know, you're you're sort of hoping that I don't know you're gonna you're gonna have like a niche streaming service come along. All of a sudden, Filmstruck is going to be your salvation. Yeah, and I should note that A24 has Zone of Interest, the big breakout from the festivals. They're coming off of Everything Everywhere All at Once, so they're going to have another big player for the Oscars. All right, I want to talk a little bit about some of the optics of Cannes. Because more than anything, this is a press festival. It's designed to generate interest in these movies. It's also a way for these companies to kind of posture and show the world that they are film players. David Zasloff, the CEO of Warner Discovery, he threw a big party with Graydon Carter at the Hotel Ducap 
And it was ostensibly for the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. But it was covered in the voluminous press accounts of the party uh, as sort of a coming out for him as a mogul. The New York Times called him like the latest Hollywood mogul to assert himself on the world stage. Do you think this is good optics for Zasloff in the middle of a writer's strike and the fact that his stock is kind of in the toilet amid all the financial issues and the streaming problems? I was frankly baffled (laughs) by the, we'll get to the optics in a second, but the notion that this was his coming out party as a mogul, this guy has been partying in the Hamptons with yes. his fellow moguls for years. <laughs> and He's been by one the of the way, highest paid media CEOs for literally like a decade. And has been running Warner Brothers Discovery for a while. He was at the Oscars. He's hosted part. I didn't get that, but I don't. That, I digress. Yeah, as that's for, the coverage. But do you think it was a good idea? As for I mean, the optics? This, no, it's a fucking terrible idea. Are you uh, kidding it me? Was just, there's this picture of him and Graydon Carter posing in front of a bottle of Dom Perignon, which was a sponsor of this party. And I, I informally texted a bunch of people like, have you ever seen a media CEO doing essentially the equivalent of a TikTok influencer photo where you are doing spawn con for your booze sponsor of your party? I'm just like, and no, everyone's like, nope. I haven't heard of that before. It's just such a bad... And they're in like matching beige, like South of France suits. It's just such a bad look. It's really hard to talk often about how you care about the writers and you want to see them paid more and all these things. And you're firing people and you're cutting costs and then you host a lavish party. And look, I get it. Your life continues just because you're you're having to cut some costs, just because you're in the middle of a strike doesn't mean you're going to stop behaving or stop living your life. But you you just think that some of these folks would be a little more tactful about it. Yeah. And I listen in in Zaslav's defense, I talked to his people and, you know, they agreed to do that commencement speech a long time ago and they didn't want to pull out and it turned into a total disaster. We got booed and this party was in the works for a long time. But you know what? That's when you have to be nimble. And if it affected his salary, I'm sure he would have really thought twice about this. It's just that I think these guys live in a bubble and are thinking, you know what? We're going to do it. We're, we're, this is a glamorous business. We're going to show some glamour at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, it, we don't care how it plays. And I think that is a mistake because Zaslav has turned himself into the villain of this writer's strike. And that's not going to help the studio side negotiating. I know we don't want to make it all about the the writer's strike, but if you had to rank a top three villains, what would be your ranking? Right now, I think Zaslav is the clear number one villain. I think number two is probably Ted Sarandos, the CEO, co-CEO of Netflix, because the model, the entire streaming model that this strike is essentially a reaction to is the Netflix model. And Netflix paid a lot of people a lot of money up front in order to fundamentally change the business model of television. And that is coming home to roost in this strike. So I think he's number two. And number three is kind of a toss up. I mean, I probably, I don't know, the signs that people have around town are more about Carol Lombardini, who is the lead negotiator for the studio. But she is sort of paid to be the bad guy. Like, that's not really her fault. I asked this because I figured you were, you were going to say Zaz and Netflix 1 and 2, which I think at least publicly is the the right answer. 
in terms of what people are railing against. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that Disney, which is sort of just as big as Netflix and in the middle of doing pretty draconian cost cuts, doesn't get grouped in at all? That's a great question. And I think it's probably due to the decade now of goodwill and positive media that Bob Iger has generated for himself, where he has not become a villain like this. Even though I think if you were to talk to talent or reps or whatever in town, Disney has always been very hard to deal with. Yeah, but it's a good question. Yeah, I was just curious. I, I, I don't, don't know the, the, I don't answer, know the answer. Who would your number three be? I mean, it would just be like AI as a concept. <laughs> I'd, I'd include... <laughs> the the chat GPT is the biggest villain. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, listen, I've, I've seen some negative signs about, you know, the Murdochs, but the Murdochs aren't even really in scripted TV that much anymore. Yeah, if they still own Fox, probably. There were no... I didn't, I didn't really see any picketers in Cannes, nor do I expect to see any in London. Huh. Well, at least no WGA picketers. There's always some kind of... Oh, know, I mean, there's always strikes and protests yes, in Europe. But Right, yeah. Usually half the time I would go there, there'd be some airline strike or a luggage strike and your bag would end up in Zimbabwe or something. So biggest overall takeaway from the Cannes Film Festival? My biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway is probably... I was surprised by the like bifurcation in sort of optimism, pessimism, kind of the US versus the rest of the world. And it, just a reminder, and this I think shows my perhaps my own naivete because I hadn't been before, but like the amount of shady financiers running around willing to fund movies. Oh, yeah. That's not new, though. Do you end up on no, any yachts? Not. Did you go to any yacht parties? I did not go on any yachts. Sad for you. I made it to the Hotel du Cop, but I did not go on any yachts. Okay. Well, that's then now you have a reason to go back. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. haven't lived until you've been on Harvey Weinstein's yacht, which I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's allowed there anymore. <laughs> he's, he's one sexual criminal that they probably do draw a line on. That's true. All right. So Craig is now cavorting through Europe and he is tonight going to the ABBA hologram show in London. So he is not with us, but producer Jesse is here with us. And I'm making Lucas stay with us for not a call sheet, no prediction today, although I do have a mini prediction. We're going to do an update on our box office draft. You know, I'm kind of bummed Craig didn't invite me to come with him for ABBA. We're in the same city. We're so close to each other. He needs his own time. He needs his own moment there to really soak in ABBA and just kind of bask in all of it. All right. So if you didn't, here are In fairness, office. I did have a prediction, but my prediction was something positive for your box office team. Okay, well then we will both offer our predictions about our box office draft. Because <laughs> if you didn't hear that episode, we each picked five movies for the year, and then we gave each other one movie. So now we're a couple months in. Three of my movies, three of my five have opened, and one of Lucas's movies has opened. And so far... My team's not doing so great. We had Little Mermaid this past weekend, which did $117 million for the four-day. Not bad. Pretty good, actually. But only 68 globally. And that's, that's a bad. big... Yeah, that's bad. And it's not doing any business in Asia. Also seems like maybe a little undercurrent of racism because there's some of the review bombing that happens with these movies. But Yeah, the Black Little Mermaid, maybe that did happen. Didn't happen in this country, but maybe overseas... I don't know. It's turning out that that was not a smart first pick for me. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is doing 
better than that. It's at 723 million. Probably we'll get into the 800s when all is said or done. That's a pretty good result for that movie. Fast 10 is at about 512 million so far. It is underperforming significantly in the US, but it is doing great business overseas. That's still a little low for my taste. I wanted that movie to get to a billion. It is almost certainly not going to get to a billion. You don't think it can get there just based on the strength of international? I don't. Not without doing at least 200 million in the US, and it's going to be hard-pressed to get there in the US. So, those are three movies that I had hoped one of them would get to a billion and probably none of them are getting to a billion. And then my other movies for the year, Barbie and Wish, and then you gave me Oppenheimer. But when I look at your roster, you've only had one movie come out and it did 1.2, Super Mario Brothers. So my prediction today is that I think you are going to win this box office grudge match. I appreciate that. I think it's early. Super Mario Brothers was my one slam dunk, no doubt about it, going to be a huge hit. The other thing working in my favor, because we are supposed to be factoring in cost, Super Mario Brothers costs like $100 million and is the biggest movie of the year. Little Mermaid and Fast are both like $250 plus million budgets. Guardians yeah. is pretty high up there too. Because my prediction, and you've already told me why I'm wrong, but my prediction is Barbie is going to be a huge hit. Yeah, see, I don't know about that. I, I, I agree the new trailer is pretty good. I've seen some soft tracking. It's very early. But I've seen soft tracking on both Barbie and Oppenheimer. So we'll see. Barbie's the big wild card of the summer, whether people show up for this. I still think it could do four or $500 million if it turns into something that moms take their kids to. But look at your movies. You got Mario already. You've got The Flash, which I saw some kind of sluggish tracking on that, like $80 million or so for an opening. I think it's going to get way higher than that once the marketing kicks in. You've got Spider-Man. You also have Aquaman 2 later this year. And then you've got Mission. You poo-pooed Aquaman when I took it, though. I still do. I, I think that's going to be the flop. <laughs> I, that, that's, they just, it just looks bad. It looks more like Shazam uh, yeah, than it proud. does The Flash. And then you've got Mission Impossible, though. And then I gave you Hunger Games. So I just think overall, the Mario thing is going to be too tough for me to overcome. And Barbie needs to turn into like some huge global smash for me to even have a chance. And then I have Wish which is this Disney animated musical that does look good. What if good. it's that? It's got an empty end of the year. It does. And it's got a song in the trailer that people are already saying could be another Let It Go. It's Ariana DeBose sings it. And uh, if that becomes a phenomenon, maybe that turns into a new Frozen. We'll see. A lot, lot left, but I'm not feeling great about my picks. You got it in you. I feel confident. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. I want to thank producer Jesse Lopez and for Craig. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. 